Hello, and welcome to the third episode of Climate Change Committee's podcast. Today, we're interviewing Dr. Betsy Stoner, an environmental science professor at Bentley University. Hi, ladies. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm Dr. Stoner, and I'm an assistant professor at Bentley University, as Ashley said. Uh, and I'm really excited to talk about climate change today. My background is in marine ecology. Uh, and so broadly, I'm really interested in how human activities affect coastal marine and estuarine ecosystems. Uh, but specifically, my work sort of centers on understanding jellyfish blooms. Um, so how uh, climate change, so warming ocean temperatures, but also um, nutrient loading, habitat modification, all of these things that humans are doing to the oceans uh, may actually stimulate the populations of jellyfish that we have globally. So a lot of my work focuses on trying to understand how jellyfish blooms may occur in human impacted environments and in turn, what effects those jellyfish blooms have on the ecosystems that they're blooming in. So that's kind of really uh, a sort of a high level description of what I'm working on, but really excited to be here to chat with you about, um, about climate change and um, human impacts in the oceans and anything else you wanna talk about. All right, so our first question we have for you is, what inspired you to get into your field of study? So for me, um, there was a lot uh, that sort of pushed me in the direction of marine ecology, but I would say that one of the biggest things that happened was um, I was probably about eight years old and we were on a family vacation. I grew up in central New York, but we were on a family vacation in Florida. And I remember walking on the beach and I, on the bottom of my feet, the soles of my feet, they, by the end of the beach walk, they were caked in these tar balls, these like big clumps of oil. And I was so disgusted and I was so confused, you know, where was the oil coming from? And what was happening. And so I had a really long conversation with my dad who uh, worked in the environmental field. Uh, and basically he was like, you know, most likely this stuff came from oil spills. And so really starting to understand the ramifications of human impacts in the marine environment and sort of the, the implications for not just marine organisms, but also for people too, right? It comes back to, to bite us. So I really started getting interested in, in um, the marine world, I would say after that trip, and just sort of started reading more about marine ecology. Um, we had the benefit of going to Florida every year on vacation, so really trying to expose myself more um, to what was going on in the oceans. Um, and then in college, I, I ended up going to a small liberal arts school, again, in the middle, middle of landlocked New York, but, um, but I had this incredible study abroad experience in the Turks and Caicos Islands, um, where I was just fully immersed in the marine world all day long, every day for a few months. 
And that just solidified my desire to do marine ecology. I think this gave an example like Turkey and Caicos, but have you traveled anywhere that's benefited your research or your studies? Yeah, so I, I would definitely say the Turks and Caicos was a big, um, a big one for me. That experience was really incredible because when I was there, one of the components of that study abroad trip was doing this directed research project. And one of the, um, one of the key fisheries that's in the Turks and Caicos is spiny uh, lobster and also queen conch. These are foods that are commonly consumed and they're exported typically to the United States actually. And so um, we, at the time we were doing this tour of a processing plant for conch and spiny lobster. And um, I had noticed that there were these big grates on the floor of the processing plant that just dumped out into the ocean. Um, and so everything just sort of got pushed out. So all of the, like the guts from the animals would just get pushed out um, as well as human waste as well. And so for this directed research project, I became really interested in getting a better handle on what was happening to all of that waste. Where was it going? Was it having any sort of ramifications on the local ecosystem? And lo and behold, after I started doing some detective work, um, I realized that a lot of that waste was going into this nearby mangrove forest. And in this mangrove forest, there were tons of jellyfish, tons and tons and tons of jellyfish, like jellyfish on top of jellyfish. And so that really started getting the wheels spinning, thinking about like, okay, are these jellyfish there because they're utilizing all of that waste? So that was a pretty pivotal um, experience for me because basically that determined what I have now devoted my life, my life to. Um, so that was a big one. And then I do uh, research trips every year to the Bahamas. That's where I focus a lot of my research now is in the Bahamas. Uh, again, looking sort of broadly at human impacts to coastal marine ecosystems. And the Bahamas are a really good place to do that because you have a lot of beautiful, relatively pristine areas that really aren't touched that much by people. And then you have a lot of heavily populated, you know, really um, densely concentrated areas where there's a lot of human activity. So you get this sort of natural gradient in human activity and not so much activity to, to study. All right, so our next question, um, you, you mentioned that you focus on studying marine life and a big issue that affects marine life are microplastics. So we were wondering what microplastics are and why are they bad for the environment? Yeah, great question. So this is actually something that we're doing a lot of work on right now at Bentley. Uh, my, my research lab is um, doing a lot of stuff on microplastics actually in jellyfish. So microplastics are teeny tiny little fragments of plastic, tiny little pieces of plastic. They're um, five millimeters or less in size. And microplastics can either be sort of unintentionally created. So if you have a big plastic, I'm trying to 
kind of a piece of plastic around me. Okay, if you have a big plastic like this card and that plastic starts breaking down into smaller little plastics, that's a microplastic. So they can be created through, you know, if a, a plastic, bigger plastic enters the oceans and salinity, so the salt can break it apart or UV radiation or wave action, it can break the plastic down, right? Um, and so a lot of microplastics are created that way through the breaking off of bigger plastics. But then microplastics can also be intentionally created. So for the creation of, of plastics, um, like bigger plastics, these tiny little plastic beads called nurdles are created from crude oil, from petroleum basically, and a bunch of other chemicals. And those little plastic balls, the nurdles, are then melted together to form the bigger plastics. So microplastics can also be those small little pre-production plastics called nurdles. So you get a lot of those plastics um, in the oceans now, unfortunately. And Delara, I forget, was, there was a second part of that question, right? Yeah, um, we were basically asking like why they're bad for the oceans and like, yeah. Yeah, whew, okay, so <laughs> there, um, so microplastics are now everywhere, right? Like 80% of all marine litter is plastic. And there are millions and millions and millions of metric tons of plastics entering the oceans every year. So we know that plastics, microplastics are invading all marine organisms. Um, they are affecting every single level of the food web, right? Everything's encountering them. We, so we know um, that uh, microplastics in general are not so great. Um, we know from um, a lot of work on larger plastics that marine organisms can become entangled in them, right? They can asphyxiate and ultimately die if they get, you know, soda, wrappers wrapped around their necks um, or um, if they ingest them, right? That's a huge problem. If organisms ingest a lot of plastics, their guts can become impacted. They can't pass the plastic. Um, they can't eat anything else because they're just so backed up. So that's a huge problem. With microplastics, really the literature is you know, it's, it's increasing. There's a lot more than there was, but we're still trying to get a handle on exactly how harmful microplastics are for marine organisms. The same sort of thing can happen with physical gut impaction with microplastics. So for instance, you know, if you're a, if you're a shellfish, right, and you're filter feeding and you're sucking in all sorts of stuff from the water, and you suck in a lot of microplastics, that's gonna physically impact your guts. You're not gonna really be able to filter feed any longer. So that kind of thing can happen. Um, we also know that plastics are very sticky, like microplastics are really sticky and they have pitted surfaces and contaminants that float around in the water really are, are sticky too, and they like to stick to plastics. So those contaminants can stick or adsorb 
to the outside of the plastics. And effectually, they, the plastics become these little poison pills because they have the contaminants stuck to them. So if enough of those build up in the bodies of organisms, um, it can affect their ability to reproduce. It can affect um, you know, how long they live. There are a lot of different health implications from ingesting the, the contaminants that are stuck to the microplastics. So that's a very long answer. <laughs> but microplastics and plastics more broadly are having a really, really harmful impact on marine life. So what would you say is the largest source of microplastics in the oceans? So the largest source of plastics generally is from land. That's sort of probably not very surprising, um, but most of the plastics that enter the oceans are from land-based sources. So things like, um, you know, stormwater runoff, okay, that carries plastics from streets and from, you know, city streets and all of that sort of stuff into water bodies that ultimately end up in the ocean. Um, and then uh, there's a lot of plastic that just sort of gets, you know, that's just litter that gets blown around and enters water that way. So most of the plastic that that is in the ocean is from land, right? Especially from coastal systems, but even inland too, right? Through series of river systems, we're finding plastics are traveling hundreds, if not thousands of miles to get to the ocean. So it's not just a problem that is just for people that live on the coast. This is a, a truly a global problem. Um, you also have water-based sources of plastic, right? So people going out fishing and, you know, accidentally cutting a line, monofilament line, that's plastic in the ocean. Big fishing traps, right? That people are going out depositing that either they forget about or they, they lose them, right? That's plastic that remains in the ocean. Cruises are a big source of plastic. Um, I know cruises are fun, but they're a huge, they're a huge source of, of waste in general. Um, so that's another big one. But primarily it's from just runoff, like getting washed through river systems. And most of the plastic waste currently that is entering the oceans globally is, is coming from Asia. Um, so we know that microplastics are really tiny, but are there ways we can remove them from water or is it completely impossible? It's such a good question and it's, it's not impossible. So there are some really cool, innovative organizations that are working on plastic removal. So the Ocean Cleanup Program is one. Um, they're doing very cool stuff. They deployed this really neat, um, it's almost like a vacuum cleaner, like a giant vacuum cleaner in the ocean. Their idea being that they want to try and clean up the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which is uh, an area that a lot of people talk about. It's There are five ocean gyres, basically these areas within the ocean that just the currents circulate um, round and round and round. And so plastics and other marine debris tend to congregate in these ocean gyres and just sort of 
spin around like, you know, a bathtub drain. And so there's a lot of plastic there, a lot of microplastics. So the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is essentially this giant floating, you know, mass of microplastics. You can't really see the plastic. It's all teeny tiny, but there's, it's there. And so Ocean Cleanup Program has devised this tool to basically sit out in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and just hoover up microplastics. And then they have this conveyor belt that sucks up the plastic. And then every now and again, a ship will come, they'll pick up these giant bins full of plastics and cart them back to shore. So the Ocean Cleanup Program is doing a lot of cool stuff. They're also, because they know that the primary source of um, plastics to the oceans is through rivers, especially in Asia, they've developed prototypes uh, that are sort of smaller, but focused on these riverine systems where the vacuum cleaners just sort of sit there in these rivers and suck up microplastics that way. Um, that's that's one of the, the big ones, but there are a lot of other organizations that are really trying to tackle this problem. There's some other innovative stuff where um, certain countries are putting these nets on um, on basically their their storm drains so that when you know there's a lot of runoff coming through storm drains it will capture all of those tiny little pieces of plastic and bigger pieces of plastic too so yeah it's 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 doable but the kind of the key right now is less about you know collecting the plastic that that's out there and it really is more about let's prevent plastics, you know, from getting in the oceans, period, right? And that becomes a conversation about plastic production and plastic use. What are some of the biggest factors that contribute to pollution in the ocean? Um, oh, geez. Okay, some of the biggest factors that contribute to pollution in the ocean. Really, you know, I'm going to tie it in with consumption um, and, and, and the comment that I just made about plastic use. Um, we, we humans use so much stuff. We have so much stuff and we tend to use a lot of materials that were sort of designed to be used once and then we throw them away, you know? So single use plastics, that's a really big problem those are things like your plastic grocery bag or you know, your plastic straw or your plastic Starbucks or Dunkin' Donut cup, right? Those are single use plastics. They were designed to just, you use them and then you throw them away. And the problem with that is that it creates so much excess waste, right? And so all of that excess waste has to go somewhere. And ultimately, unfortunately, a lot of it ends up in the oceans. So I don't know if that answers the question, Ashley, but I would say that the, one of the biggest problems is just from you know, human consumption and how much we use and how much we throw away, right? That doesn't unfortunately go away. Your waste has to go somewhere. And we don't often have to think much about where it goes. But unfortunately, we know more and more that that waste is, is ending up in our oceans. 
So this is more of a general question, but a lot of marine life have been dying due to debris and waste in the oceans. So what are some potential consequences if marine ecosystems completely collapse? Yeah, that's it, that's a big problem. <laughs> that's a big problem. And that's um, basically the biggest consequence that I can think of is that we we as a species happen to be at the top of food webs, right? So, you know, over, over a billion people, for instance, rely on um, marine ecosystems, closer actually to 3 billion, I think at this point, rely heavily on marine ecosystems for their primary source of, of protein from fish. And so if our marine food webs start to collapse because so many organisms are heavily impacted, not just by microplastics, by, but by you know everything else, climate change and ocean acidification, um, humans are really negatively affected at the end of the day, you know? And so that's a very, very big concern. And so I think that, yeah, that's kind of the most, one of the most alarming issues about microplastics in the ocean is that, you know, we, we know that marine organisms are ingesting these plastics. We we're learning more and more every day about sort of the harmful impacts that they have on marine fauna. What we really still don't know that much about because the science is so new, we really don't know if ingesting a fish that has a tummy full of microplastics, we don't know if that's harmful to our health. We just don't know. Bear in mind, plastics really weren't started, like we didn't create plastics in a big way until the 1950s. So this is a relatively new environmental problem that we're just starting to get a better handle on. So I think that's a big one. I'm just, I'm ultimately worried that if we, you know, if we have marine food webs that are so severely degraded that it's gonna be a big problem for people. And we also still don't really know about the human health implications of a lot of this stuff. Like, what does that mean for humans to ingest a lot of seafood that is chock full of plastics we don't really know. So getting the topic more to climate change, how has global warming essentially affected the oceans? Oh, yeah, in a very big way. Um, I would argue that even above microplastics, and that's a huge pervasive problem, global climate change and rising sea surface temperatures is the biggest problem that is facing the oceans right now. It's the biggest challenge. It's, it's having a huge impact. Um, you know, we know that temperatures are rapidly increasing in a lot of, a lot of oceans, right? Um, we know that we're seeing increases. Um, where there was just an article that came out the other day about how, um, basically one of the key currents that allows in the Atlantic that allows for warm water to be driven northwards um, is sort of getting stalled because really, really cold water that is melting off of Greenland is pushing down. So this cold, fresh water is pushing down and it's effectively stopping the warm water moving up. So 
you know, that's going to affect the ability of certain marine organisms to live in parts of the ocean. It's, we're going to see increased storm activity and, um, and more storms, right? Like bad hurricanes. We're going to see parts of the world become even drier than they already are. So parts of Africa, just because of this stalled sort of current, right? So that's just one example of how climate change um, is really having a huge impact on the oceans. And the oceans basically have single-handedly thus far saved our butts because so much heat is absorbed by the ocean because the ocean does such a great job at taking our heat. I think there's some statistic out there that like every minute one atomic bomb's worth of heat energy um, is absorbed by the ocean. So the oceans are really saving our butt. Our planet would be fried if it weren't for the oceans right now. But because they're taking so much heat, um, things are just heating up at such a fast rate. And that's having huge cascading effects on marine life, on um, even on dissolved oxygen, right? It's affecting our ocean's ability to retain dissolved oxygen. It's affecting our ocean's ability to um, take up more CO2, right? Which is kind of important. So big issues, <laughs> a, lot, a lot there to unpack, but yeah, that's a huge, huge concern. So this is kind of a follow-up to Ashley's question, but how does climate change affect pH levels in oceans? Yeah, so I often like to think about climate change and, um, and ocean acidification. They're kind of like evil stepsisters. So they're both caused by the same thing, but they're not exactly the same. So we know that climate change and we know that ocean acidification are both being driven by elevated greenhouse gas levels, particularly in this case, CO2, right? Uh, climate change, we know that's really affecting like ocean temperature, but ocean acidification, so that's what you're referring to, Delara, is with the, the pH, right? So we're seeing that basically because of all of the CO2 that we as humans are producing through burning fossil fuels, right? Um, all of that CO2 that's being generated in the atmosphere, like roughly 30% of that is going into the oceans. And that CO2, when it hits the water, it forms something called carbonic acid. So it's this really weak acid, but it's an acid. And so the ocean has historically always been more basic. Like if you think about the pH scale, right? You've got acids, you've got bases. Um, so it's always been a little bit more alkaline or basic because of all of the, the calcium carbonate um, within ocean water, basically like limestone, it's like what coral, stony corals are made up out of. But, and that's helped neutralize a lot of acid, but unfortunately um, the, the acid that's being created by CO2 is starting to effectively gobble up the calcium carbonate in the oceans. And so it's becoming more and more acidic 
The big problem being that creatures that rely on calcium carbonate, effectively limestone or chalk, um, that need to make their skeletons like stony coral or shellfish, right? They have calcium carbonate um, shells or even things like squid. Squid have calcium carbonate inside of them. Fishes have little bony discs inside of their heads that are made up of calcium carbonate. So many marine organisms need calcium carbonate for some reason. And if all of that's gobbled up because of all of the acid basically that's in the ocean, those critters can't create calcium carbonate any longer. And that, so again, talking about collapsing marine food webs, that has a huge impact on marine food webs. Are there ways that we as humans can help sustain marine life? And if so, then how? It's such a good question. And yes, we can. So a big one is the probably the hardest to do, but it's it's the most important. And that is to really stop um, consumption as much as we are from, in terms of like greenhouse gases, right? So that means reducing our consumption of fossil fuels. That means um, really thinking more critically about uh, the amount of resources that we consume that would contribute to climate change and producing more CO2 that would contribute to ocean acidification, right? So that's a big one. Um, but also, you know, thinking, going back to some of the plastic stuff, even thinking more like, hmm, do I really need to use that grocery bag, right? Is there an alternative? Do I really need to use that plastic straw? Is there an alternative, right? Thinking, you know, at least in a more manageable way about our consumption and, and how much we feel that we need to consume of things that maybe, you know, we don't necessarily need as much um, like single use plastics. That's one, I think, really attainable solution, right? So absolutely, I think we can definitely, we as humans, we've sort of created a lot of these problems, but we can also solve our way out of a lot of these problems. We just have to think a lot more critically about consumption. So you talked a little bit about traveling, but have you participated in any experiments or projects that have helped you collect research? And if so, which ones? Yeah. Um, oh, so many, um, so many fun experiences. So I guess um, some of the key ones, I would say, like recently with the microplastics, jellyfish stuff, um, I had the opportunity to collect jellyfish from various parts of Florida to see uh, if they were, you know, obtaining microplastics. So that was really cool to be able to go to a bunch of different systems in Florida and collect jellyfish. I can tell you, you get stung a lot. <laughs> if you do jellyfish research, you get stung a lot. So um, so that was awesome. Um, and that definitely, that, it, that whole study allowed us to really very closely understand how microplastics might affect jellyfish. We don't 
typically think much about jellyfish as being sort of important in the food web, but they are. They're really important food for a lot of different critters. So if jellyfish are ingesting a lot of microplastics, you know, thinking more long-term, like how might that affect the marine food web again? So that was really cool. Um, I've done, as I said, I've done a lot of research in the Bahamas. Uh, one of the studies that I'm, I felt like was most informative was looking at how jellyfish blooms, these big reproductive events of jellyfish in seagrass beds, um, how that would influence the critters that could live in these seagrass beds, these really important nursery habitats for a lot of little baby fish and, you know, little baby lobster and other critters. And, um, and through this research experience in the Bahamas, we found that, in fact, these big jellyfish blooms basically forced animals out. The animals couldn't live there or they died. So that was really eye-opening to see that happen. And I remember even one experience where um, there, there was just so many jellyfish in this one area and a little baby fish swam into an area where there were a lot more jellyfish and it got stung so badly that I, I saw it die right in front of me, this little baby fish. So that was really, that was kind of eye-opening um, for me, that research project to see what kinds of impacts these jellyfish blooms could have on the ecosystems that they're blooming in. How do you think that younger generations can prevent the negative effects of climate change on the environment? Uh, I think there are so many ways. I mean, for starters, this, this is kind of amazing, you guys. So great job. Um, just educational outreach, right? Getting people to think more about climate change, getting people to think more about consumption and, and how they're, you know, the role that they can play in climate action, right? That's a big one. Um, I would not saying that people should do this, but I was reading an article a colleague and friend sent me about how um, <laughs> these individuals started uh, effectively trolling um, big oil and on Twitter. And, um, and, but that was so, it was great because ultimately what happened is big oil started responding to these tweets and ultimately banned some of these people. Um, and that got so much attention from, you know, social media and a, a bunch of other folks that that really raised awareness on using fossil fuels, right? Um, and a lot of the, you know, sort of the hypocrisy that's going on right now with big oil talking about all of the environmental changes that they're making. So educational outreach is huge. So good job, you guys. Um, but I think, you know, really, talking with people about making sure that they're voting, um, making sure that they are really like taking an active role, um, whether that's in your local community, right, politically, or maybe, you know, helping others campaign for um, 
political causes that are really focused on climate change and climate action. I think that's a really big one. I think that one of the things that I've been so excited to see with the younger generation is that you guys are really up on the issues. You guys know what is going on. And I think that that is so critical. And I think the more you like show and demonstrate to maybe the older generations that are in politics that like, hey, we know what's going on and we care and our voices matter and you have to listen to us. The more that can happen, the more change will occur. And so I think that that's gonna be a really, really big um, thing for the younger generation. But just also like, you know, developing, I teach, as you guys know at Bentley, and I teach a lot of business students. So developing more of an environmental awareness, no matter what you end up doing, you don't need to be an environmental scientist or you know, an environmentalist even, um, or a climate activist, right? You don't need to be any of those things. You could be a business person, but still have this awareness of what's going on with climate change and what's going on more globally in terms of these environmental issues, and you can affect change in your job, right? Maybe that's starting like a task force at your job about, you know, things that your company could do to change their environmental efforts. It's just, I think a lot of it is like getting people aware and motivated and becoming really active. And I think that your generation is so good at that already. So do you have any final thoughts or closing comments? Um, I guess just, I would say like, keep it up one, because again, this is amazing. And I think this is so awesome that you guys are doing this. But I, just to go back to that point that I just made, I think Sometimes we have a tendency when we talk about climate change or really any environmental challenge, because they're big, complex problems, we sometimes we call them wicked problems, right? They're so difficult and so big, and there's so many layers to the onion that it's really hard to tackle. But I think like one of the things that is really important to remember is you, the individual, can affect environmental change right? You can. And yes, these are incredibly massive problems and there are a lot of layers to them. But I think that what we're starting to see more and more of with like the Greta Thunbergs of the world is that every individual can affect change. You can do something to make a difference. And so maybe you start small and maybe that means like, hey, for me, that means you know, I'm not going to use single-use plastic bags when I go to the grocery store. That adds up, right? That's that ultimately over a lifetime, that adds up and that makes a difference. Maybe it's to one sea turtle, <laughs> but that adds up. So I think keeping this up, keeping up educational awareness and also remembering that, yes, that these are big fights but that every single person can do something to contribute in a positive way. All right, that's all the questions we have for you. Thank you so much. Um, this is so fun. Thank you.